Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the April edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 292, we visit with Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson, authors of Dark Angel, a Shepherd series novel. Former Nail Seal Jedediah Johnson returns to Nashville ready to begin his training with the elite warriors known as the Shepherds. He thinks he knows what to expect when he arrives on the sprawling state-of-the-art facility, but quickly realizes he'll have to find his place as the rookie leader of a new team. Then he starts having visions of an imminent attack overseas, and with the clock ticking, Jed and his team are dispatched to neutralize the threat. All the while, Jed hears whispers of another threat, a name that raises unexplained fear and anger throughout the Shepherds organization, Nicholas Wolin, a man who betrayed the Shepherds. As Wolin and the Shepherds race toward a collision, Jed must rely on his gifts, his training, and his untested team to make critical decisions on a global stage never realizing that a secret servant of the enemy is growing closer and closer to him. Joel C. Rosenberg, New York Times bestselling author of the Marcus Riker series, says of the book, a pulse-pounding thriller, Andrews and Wilson will capture you right out of the gate. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turn podcaster of books and stories and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. A few quick things to know about the podcast. Uh, you can listen to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcast on all major podcast platforms, but you can also get more at charlottereaderspodcast.com. At our website there, you can get show notes on each episode where we share information about uh, the authors who appear on the show. There's a guest list that shows all the authors with links to their episodes. There is a community blog where authors who've appeared on the show or who've submitted to the podcast can share their wisdom and knowledge about writing and book recommendations. And then we have a community vlog where we do some Facebook live interviews. Uh, if you like video, check that out. And then there's the book report you can sign up for uh, at the podcast website. That's where we share on a monthly basis information about the podcast, what's happening, what's coming, and uh, hey, we won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And if you like uh, audiobooks, check out Libro.fm. We have an affiliation with them because they support independent bookstores. And when you sign up, if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, you're going to get a free audiobook. On the Landis Wade front, check out LandisWade.com. That's where you can find out more about uh, me and my writing. I also have a blog there where I, I write about uh, what I've learned uh, from authors and learned about the writing process. It's called Wade Scripts. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for there, uh, the Landis Wade Author Newsletter. And shameless plug here, I have a novel out uh, as of April 5th. It is called Deadly Declarations. It is a novel about a trio of unlikely retirees who set out to solve the mystery of the supposed Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. That is, if they don't die trying, I'd love to have you check that out. You can find out more at LandisWade.com and wherever books are sold. And now, let's get to the episode. Brian and Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here talking to you. 
Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, and so Brian, you're coming to us from uh, out in Kansas City. Jeff, you're normally in Tampa, Florida, but you said you're actually doing research in the foreign hills of West Virginia today, or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm up here in the in God's country today. There you go. Well, look, uh, both of you, congratulations on the book, the second in the uh, Shepherd series. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited about this book. Uh, for us, this is a new series, the Shepherd series, and um, it's allowed us to do some really interesting things. Uh, we have our typical special operations and military characters, but we've also been able to weave in a, a faith component into the story, which has been very, very rewarding for us. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I, I will say that uh, I really enjoyed the book, but I wasn't expecting the supernatural element or the spiritual element, whatever you want to call it. Your publicity package describes the book as taken meets stranger things. But I might have said Revelations meets Jason Bourne. How about that? So e either way, this is a different kind of, you know, covert ops book that brings in sort of a dark and and a light spiritual side. And I'd like to talk about that for just a minute with the two of you, because this is the second book in a series that involves this spiritual component. Um, it's a theme. Let's talk about that theme. Sure. You know, it was exciting to have the opportunity to weave that in. And we had a couple of people early on say, wow, we're surprised to see you make such a big pivot over to this other genre. And I think Brian and I were surprised by that because we don't really view it that way. You know, the questions of faith, questions of God is, is he real? Is he part of my life? What is good and evil? These are universal questions of the human condition. And so to add that layer to a character since we write such character-driven thrillers anyway, just didn't seem like a, a big reach for us. It's just such a universally uh, common theme that uh, it's almost more weird to not address it at some level in your book in an appropriate way. And so um, to us, it was just one more layer that we can put in a character-driven story, I think. Yeah, and, and I would say it's still good versus evil, right? I mean, uh, it's just a different way of going about it. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you meet Jedediah Johnson in the first book, this is a man who's not only physically broken, but he is spiritually broken and he's looking for purpose. You know, he's having to separate from the community that he's been operating in for the past 15 years, you know, medically being retired from the Navy. What am I going to do with myself? And oh, by the way, you know, he's got a lot of demons, you know, figuratively or literally, uh, locked in the closet, you know, that he has not addressed. Um, and so that's kind of this reckoning, you know, this homecoming with Jed going back to Nashville in book one. Uh, it's really about him going back to his roots, but also trying to rediscover, you know, who am I? What What is my purpose? What am I here for? And, you know, what is my relationship with God, too? Yeah. And so um, do y'all bring some of your own uh, faith knowledge or faith experiences to this particular book? Yeah, so I think that the um, these questions are very common in combat veterans. You know, Brian and I are both Navy veterans, and these questions of good and evil, um, when you've been in situations where you've seen real evil, not just bad things people do to people, but just real indescribable evil, it becomes a part of your DNA to, to seek the answers to those questions. And so there's no question. I've I've seen some horrible, horrible things in my time in the Navy that uh, I can't explain as anything other than good versus evil. And so to weave that through was exciting. But also this element in the Jedediah character of a crisis in faith, not a crisis of faith, not 
oh, I don't think there's a God anymore, but more I'm questioning what I believe about God, what I believe about his role in my life. And so the opportunity to weave that through, because I struggled with that in my own life, and I have so many close friends who struggled with it as well. That was very exciting for us, I think. Yeah, but but I don't know. There's a component of this which sort of adds to the plot line, adds to the suspense, adds to the supernatural element, where you've got these, uh, I don't know when you call them, seers or people that can sort of help Jedediah and his team. They can sort of telepathically communicate with them. Where did that idea come from? The Watchers. Yeah, yeah. the Watchers are fundamental to this story. And I think it came from the fact that Jeff and I are both fathers. We both have daughters, young daughters, um, uh, girls the same age, the same age as Sarah Beth. And, you know, when you're a father and you watch your children interact with adults, you realize that they have, uh, they almost have this superpower, right? And the superpower is they can sort of sense insincerity. They can sort of pick up when somebody's maybe not being uh, forthright. And I think as we get older, we tend to maybe it's it's some, maybe it's somehow related to cynicism, but we start to maybe uh, lose that sensitivity to people's true motives. And in a child, you know, you can you could. I remember coming back from you know an interaction with somebody, and one of my daughters said, you know, Daddy, I don't think he's a very nice man. And I thought. Yeah, he, he, he acted like he was a nice man, but they picked up on the fact this guy's uh, he's in it for himself, not not a particularly good person. And so the watchers sort of symbolize, I think um, they're an allegory for this innocence, but also just the fact that children can really hone in on, you know, somebody else's character. And so we thought, how cool would that be to actually put it into the story and take it up one level where the watchers are augmenting these adults. The adults can go out there and fight the battles, but do they really see the whole perspective as well as mm. these kids do? That's great. Seeing it through a child's eyes, sometimes they see a lot more than we do. So uh, before we get into the book a little bit more, um, your own experiences and how you came together, you've probably talked about this before, but I'm curious about it. Uh, uh, both of you have, as you said, you served in in, in the military. You've also had other experiences uh, been in submarines, been actors, firefighters, uh, various deployments. Uh, how did this uh, this knowledge, uh, you know, people say write what you know or write what you learn to know or whatever that may mean. How did that experience help you do what you've done with all these books you put out? I mean, the obvious answer is, you know, the having military experience, having covert operations experience makes it easy to write the space we write. Um, but I think beyond that, the myriad of experiences that we've had allow us to write the relationship side, you know, not not boy girl relationship, but the relationship between operators, between parents, between all of those things. When you have a rich, diverse life experience, you can write character driven stuff because you have so many models for the characters in your life. And in all of our series in tier one and Sons of Valor, especially, perhaps we're able to show what those conflicts are. In this book, we were able to take experiences as parents, for example, experiences in other professions and blend them into characters that we hope come off the pages, very realistic. And, you know, there's someone out there that says, oh, I get that. I felt that. I know that, uh, what that feels like. And so I think more than just the job experience, I think that's what we've tried to bring here. 
So I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, Jedediah, but uh, is there a little bit of both Brian and Jeff in this character? <laughs> a little bit of Je Brian and Jeff in every character, I bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well. so when did you two start dating as authors before you decided to? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we met at a bar, like all these stories start. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, we, uh, both military guys, uh, like we, we introduced ourselves Navy veterans, um, but we're also members of this really incredible community of thriller writing authors. Um, there's a fantastic group called the International Thriller Writers. They have a conference every year in New York City. And it's this wonderful experience where everybody comes together. There's sessions where they do um, teaching on craft and how to pitch your book and how to network with agents and editors and um, talking about the industry. And, and so we both started there. We were debut authors, got our agent at Thriller Fest. We met at Thriller Fest and uh, we had been going a couple, you know, every summer we would go and reconnect. We became really close friends. But then it wasn't until we had a couple books out each that we sort of I don't know, on a lark kind of kicked around this idea of maybe co-authoring together. Man, you never looked back? Never looked back. I was actually the reluctant partner. It was his idea. And I was like, no, dude, how would that, how do you write a book together? Like, I don't even, what are you talking about? And we sort of brainstormed it together with the idea that I was going to help him because he wanted to have this special warfare component. And I worked in that community and we wound up brainstorming this book out and it became so big and so exciting I think we both wanted to do it, but I couldn't see how we co-author it. So Brian, with his psychology background, manipulated me. He said, here's what we'll do. Let's write five chapters. And if it's working, we'll keep going. And if not, you can have the story. And I was like, oh, I just got a great story idea, right? But um, it was so effortless and it was so fun to write with someone who's a good friend. And uh, we just never looked back. We're, how many books now, Brian, as co-authors? Like, 17 or I, I don't know what it is, but it's a lot. We've done a lot of books now together and I can't even imagine writing any other way. Yeah. So um, that question that you raised yourself, how am I going to do this? I mean, <laughs> as an author myself, I'm thinking it's such a solitary uh, experience, you know, when you're sitting there writing and uh, you, some people might be an outliner, some people might not be, some people might you know, like to start at the beginning, some start in the middle, you know, it's just all different techniques. So how did you do it when you started and how has it changed now? I'll let Brian take it from here. <laughs> well, when it started, we were like, it's kind of like you, how is this possibly going to work? Because it is a very solitary activity. But I think what we had to fall back on is this experience of being Navy veterans, right? So when, you know, as a submarine officer, I can tell you that you cannot take a submarine to sea with one person, right? <laughs> I mean, it takes, it takes a crew. And so we were very used to collaborating, working together with people, trusting other people with our lives and with our work. And I think that that sort of mission before self uh, approach to life and business is what allowed us to co-author. So in the case of writing, I think a lot of authors would say, I wrote this prose. I think it's really good. Don't touch it, you know. And you'd want to guard it and you wouldn't want somebody getting in there and, and messing with the recipe, right? Whereas I think for us, it was, hey, let's tell a really, really good story. We don't know where it's going to go. We're going to figure it out together. 
And in the, from the very beginning, I have to give Jeff credit uh, because he said, you know, we have to take our ego out of this. So you can change anything I write, and hopefully you'll agree that I can change anything you write. And once we embrace that, and I said yes, and once we embrace that philosophy, it's like very empowering. Okay, it's not about who wrote, you know, what chapter or what page or this piece of dialogue. It's this is our book. We wrote it together, and we're proud of the book. And it's pretty much impossible, given our method, that you could open the book and be like, oh, well, Brian wrote that and Jeff wrote that. Because the truth is, we're allowed, we're editing each other's work uh, the entire time through the process. So his hands on every little piece of prose that I've written and vice versa. So what you really end up with is this Andrews and Wilson voice. That's the combination of our two talents, as opposed to being able to pick out who did what in the story. Now that we've got that figured out, at least partially, Let's talk a little bit about the plot here before we jump into a reading. Um, we've got uh, this main character is a Navy SEAL, Jedediah Jachi. You talked a little bit about in the first book how he's down in his luck, uh, so to speak, and uh, he's got a lot of challenges in front of him. But uh, there's another character in this book, too, that's uh, pretty important. Uh, you can't have a good novel without an antagonist. Who wants to talk about Nicholas Wolin? <laughs> so I will say that... Um... It's not unique to this book. In all of our books, we feel like it's hugely important to write an antagonist that is the hero of their own story. And uh, it makes them rich. It makes them relatable. Um, and we tried to do that with Nicholas. A little harder in this series, because you are writing about some really evil stuff, right? And so um, to try to find a backstory for Nicholas uh, and his journey was a little bit more challenging. Uh, but in him, what we tried to do is, is write an arc of a man who is seeking power, he's seeking purpose, but he's finding it in the wrong places. Uh, and as a result, he's not someone who was evil as a child and was always evil. He's a person that actually tried the faith avenue, but was in it for the selfish reasons. And as a result, it didn't satisfy him and he changed course. So he's a fallen angel, if you will, because he was someone who was on, he was part of the shepherds, in fact. Um, and so he was a really fun character to write because we can show so much conflict in him that's sort of a great reflection of that good versus evil story. All right, listeners. Uh, unfortunately, we just lost uh, half of the uh, writing team here. Uh, Jeff is, uh, as we said, he's in the middle of West Virginia somewhere. And he was about to talk about the antagonist or was in the middle of talking about it. Maybe Nicholas Wolin got to him. What do you think, Brian? <laughs> yeah, he did. So now that we're stuck with me, I can give you half of a good answer. So it's just okay. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. You won't know how the book ends, but you'll get us to the halfway point. right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk a bit more about Nicholas Wolin because he's the one that interfered with Jeff's participation here. Yeah. I think what Jeff was starting to get into is the fact that, you know, with Nicholas, there's not a whole lot that's sympathetic uh, for him, other than the fact that we've all been in situations where, um, you know, you're you're trying to do, you're acting in your own self-interest and suddenly, uh, you know, that self-interest starts to dominate. When we, we've seen people like that where, you know, power starts, there's that saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think in the world today, we're seeing a lot of that with um, our dictatorial leaders overseas and, and politicians, even at home. And, you know, when I was in the Navy, I remember I was an officer in the Navy. And I remember um, as I gained in ranks and became a lieutenant, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I can't let these bars on my collar 
um, start to impact the way that I treat people, you know, because you do start to feel, oh, with this rank, I become important with this rank. You can't question what I say. Um, and that's just that, that when I started to feel the creep of entitlement uh, coming into my mindset, I was actively policing it. And I realized, you know, this is, I saw some other officers that didn't, you know, that they thought they were right just because of their rank and they didn't always treat the enlisted folks uh, in our command, you know, with the respect maybe that they deserve. And so I think Nicholas Wollen is this cautionary tale of what happens when you're in a position of power, you start to like it, and you start to think that, you know, this power makes me right, you know, and, um, and that's his, that, that was his downfall. Well, speaking of Nicholas Wolin, the book opens uh, with him. And on Charlotte's podcast, we like to have authors give voice to the written words. You're going to start uh, your reading uh, at the beginning of the book, beginning of Dark Angels. So uh, anytime you're ready, Brian, just take it away. Great. Here we go. Chapter one, Lasante Prison, 42 Rue Lasante, Paris, France, 1158 hours local. Nicholas Wolin, known simply as the American to prisoners and guards alike, sat on the edge of his hard, narrow cot, hands resting idly on his knees. With eyes closed, he began four-count tactical breathing to ready himself, a practice he'd acquired in the Army during his 10 years of service as a Green Beret. Most of the things he'd learned in his former life, he'd jettisoned. The way a space capsule rids itself of a booster rocket once attaining orbit but some things he'd kept, the tactically useful bits. After two rounds, his pulse slowed and the knots of tension he stored in his neck and heavily muscled shoulders began to relax. Today was the day, and he needed to be both physiologically and mentally prepared to do his part for the plan to succeed. There would be no second chances of this much, he was certain. His cell was located on the third floor of D block, was spacious compared to most a luxury he'd earned after his third cellmate had been found dead on the floor at Reveille. The prison director, August Chauvin, had ordered Wolin placed in solitary confinement as a punishment. But after 45 days in solitaire, he'd been relocated to D-Block while retaining his sans roommate status. A simple white placard that read Puny was affixed to the wall of his cell door, a visible signal to all that he was being punished in perpetuity. It was nothing more than an administrative exercise, however, so Director Chauvin could satisfy the lawyers and the army of French human rights activists to whom he was obligated to bend the knee. Chauvin was a politician, not a true prison warden, and aptly named, as his head was as bald as an egg. That his infamous American charge had killed three inmates under his care was a potentially career-ending black mark for Chauvin. Wolin knew that the feckless director would do whatever it took to salvage his career even if it meant leaving one rack permanently empty in his two-man cell. Before the renovations, living conditions had been far more barbaric at France's most storied prison. But calls for reform had put an end to the inhumane living conditions and brutal treatment of the inmates at La Sante. Parisian sensibility, it seems, was as tenacious as it was naive and had proven so by performing an HGTV-type home makeover on the prison that housed France's most dangerous criminals. Yet despite the reforms, he'd had enough of this place. Nicholas Wolin was no man's caged beast, and he would gnaw off his proverbial paw if that's what it took to be free. 
Footsteps echoed in the corridor, getting louder and closer until finally stopping just outside his door. A klaxon sounded, loud and jarring, announcing that Wollen's cell door would be opening momentarily. He continued his four-count breathing, anticipating what was about to happen next. Andre was about to happen next. So thanks for that, Brian. Uh, question, this uh, storied prison in France, it's like right in the middle of Paris, right? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, and have you been there? Have you seen it? No. Just, just read about it and studied it? Yeah. 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 So how did, um, how did you decide to start this story in France? Well, we knew we wanted to have um, Wolin overseas. You know, we, we wanted him, we wanted some separation from the shepherds. So we decided to put him over there. And we wanted to figure out, you know, how is it exciting? It's always fun to start the book with action. There's this old adage, start the book with action and explain it later. <clears throat> so we want to start with action. So prison break seemed fun. And we just started looking at, you know, researching various high security prisons uh, where we could have some drama. And this one in the center of, Pran of France just seemed like a great one. So, yeah. And the contrast is important here. You're right. Start the book in the middle. Don't start at the beginning, right? Yeah. <laughs> where the action is. And you started where the action was with this uh, jailbreak, but then you take us to this uh, training facility and uh, your, your protagonist is showing up uh, there. And of course um, that facility I want to talk about that in just a minute, but I also want to talk about what the shepherds, these are not people that are attending, you know, their flock, you know, by day. These are well-trained, well-armed, you know, highly experienced covert operatives. Uh, but talk about the name, the shepherds. Right. So you really nailed it there. And, and so when we think about the shepherds, we think about the, you know, historical role of the shepherds. Um, simply just acting as protectors, right? Protecting their flock, protecting um, their charges, protecting those who cannot protect themselves, right? So that's, you know, historically the shepherd. And then you have the biblical sense, right? Um, and so it just felt right to give uh, a modern twist. Who are our protectors today? You know, who protect the those who cannot defend themselves against great violence of action. And, and that would be our operators. Our operators protect uh, us from terrorists. They protect us from people who want to infringe on our way of life and our liberties. So it seemed like a natural fit for us to sort of modernize this idea of the shepherd. And, and that's where the organization got its name. That's great. So talk about the setting a little bit. I was really intrigued when I read the part of the book about the Trinity Loop Training Center. Um, and particularly the kill house. Does this kind of technology exist for training covert ops personnel? I, something very close to this exists, yes. Um, the types of um, uh, marking rounds and kill houses and um, you know simulated uh, operations, that definitely exists. We took it up a little bit with this um, you know, the size of this facility and the, and the ability to in incorporate augmented reality. Uh, you, there's a new army. The army's been prototyping a new um, helmet that has an augmented reality display. So we're very close to this uh, happening in real life. We just wanted to put it in now because it was it was super fun. But yeah, what, what what was so thrilling about writing this book is that you know book one, Dark Intercept, almost is a standalone story in the sense that it, it sort of functions as a prologue, and we got to tell. Jed's sort of Batman story, his origin story almost happens in this book, you know, meeting his team, 
going through training, learning about the organization, trying to acquire those skills that make going to take him to the next level. So that was super fun. And what, you know, I don't know if you picked up on this, but we were thinking about, okay, in the military, it's very easy. You take all your new recruits, you put them through boot camp, and it's not just about weeding them out. It's about teaching them, you know, respect for the organization and forcing them to bond together, right? So through shared suffering, a bond forms in the boot camp class. And we thought, you know, Jet's an experienced operator. He's been through buds. You know, he's he's a blooded Navy SEAL. We can't stick him in boot camp. And they're like, but maybe we could, you know, like how would this organization who's who's recruiting operators of all different backgrounds and experience levels, how are you going to make them, you know, merge as a team? How do you get them to gel? How do you not have a Nicholas Wolin problem happen again? And so we actually worked that in the plot and thought, you know, what would be cool is if the senior the veterans on the team voluntarily go through boot camp with the new members. They do it on purpose. They're willing to go through it um, to have that shared sacrifice and, and create those bonds. And so that's what we did. Yeah. Well, Jed shows up, he's thinking he's having a meeting and he says, uh, you got about 10 minutes to get your kid on because we got to run 10 miles and do this, that, and the other. He says, wait, well, I've already been through that. I'm, I'm, I'm trained. But then he realizes that, uh, as you just said, for their team to come together, uh, he's going to have to do some of those things. And that kill house, I mean, you've seen on TV, you know, where the FBI goes outside and the and they train and they're they're up against uh, behind rock walls and behind, you know, and they're shooting at people that are bad guys and they got to not shoot at the one that's a good guy. You've done it, but you've done it in kind of a, you know, simulated. They go into this, uh, everything turns dark, uh, things show up. They got to. I thought that was, first of all, I didn't want to be in the middle of that video. <laughs> you know, that seemed too intense. Uh, but another setting you, you used was the Vatican, of course, because you got the, you know, get this theme of, uh, you know, good versus evil and, uh, you know, the God and what's happening in the, in the watchers. Uh, talk about the Vatican. Have you been to the Vatican? Did it help you in your uh, writing the story? I have been to the Vatican and, uh, I uh, toured it. Uh, it's been quite a long time, I think 10, 15 years. Didn't go specifically for this uh, book, but I have been. And um, anyone who else is listening who's been can probably agree uh, that it's a powerful experience. I mean, um, not just the architecture, but you can really feel um, the gravity of the place. Um, so many important decisions have been made there. So many important people have walked there. So, so many just average human beings have walked inside the vat. We're talking millions and millions and millions of people over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. So it has real gravity, it has a real sense of holiness. And, and I felt that when I was there and, and, and we felt like, you know, what would be a more, what's the most difficult place imaginable for the dark ones to try to infiltrate? And if they can infiltrate the Vatican, it just shows how seditious uh, that organization is. And so that was really something we wanted to explore is this idea in, in the seat of ultimate holiness, you know, can evil worm its way in there and, and try to cause chaos? And that was sort of why we chose to write the climax there. 
Yeah. And so, you know, your themes, uh, you know, you got war, faith, crisis of faith, the uh, nature of good and evil. Um, and they talk about good novels being, you know, sort of that intersection of where truth and imagination, you know, come together. Although when I'm thinking about thrillers and the kind you write and other thriller writers that I like to read, write, uh, I often wonder how much of this is on the true part and how much of this is on the imagination part. Because uh, it's a scary world out there, right? Yeah. And I love that question. And I think that that's what storytellers try to do is think about that sort of what if this is really happening. And Jeff had mentioned earlier, you know, he's when he was serving in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, some of the things he saw, they, they just seemed they weren't just warfare. It felt like pure evil, just a malice, you know, and, and we we both had these discussions, you know, is there some are there chess pieces moving just outside of what we can see, you know, is there a veil sort of separating between, you know, just normal human activity and when somebody starts to do these types of things that are just, um, you know, more this moral depravity that goes beyond the pale. And so that was sort of the idea of this is, you know, maybe there is spiritual warfare happening all around us. It's just that we, we can't see it, you know, and only the few, the special few maybe who are highly attuned to it can start to perceive what's going on. And, and that's, that's sort of the kernel of the idea of the series. Yeah. So let's wrap up here. Uh, just a couple of writing life questions. Uh, this was going to be to the two of you, but Jeff's not here. So we'll, we'll let you, you take them on here. Um, you've already talked a little bit about how your past to writing and how you came together and how you write together. Um, just curious, um, you know, if you could tell your younger writing self something very helpful that had you known it uh, back when you started writing might have made a difference, what would it be? Yeah, my first book took me eight years to finish, and now I'm writing four a year with Jeff. So I've come a long way. <laughs> and I would tell my younger self, stop polishing that cannonball. You know, in the Navy, we had this joke about polishing the cannonball. Like, how long do you polish it before it's shining, you know? And so I would say, you know, if you're if you're an aspiring writer, just write, um, get the words on the page and um, don't worry about making each sentence perfect because the process of writing uh, the story is going to inform the story. And what I mean by that is it's impossible to know everything that's going to happen in your book until you've gone through the act of writing it. And so most of our best ideas come uh, not before we wrote the book, it's while we're writing the book, you know, and the characters and the plot starts to unfold. You think, okay, well, what about this? How can I make this better? Does this make sense? Oh, this character did something that maybe I didn't expect. And so now the story goes in a different direction. And so if you just work on getting the story told, getting that first draft done, then the polishing component can come later. And that's when it's supposed to happen anyway. You really want to get that rough draft done and then take an objective look at it and say, okay, this really is a rough draft. Anything in this manuscript is open to change. So where do I want to start adding and subtracting to make the suspense bigger, the conflict bigger, the stakes bigger, the action bigger? You can't do those. You can't ask yourself those questions until you have something to work with. Yeah, they say that uh, all good writing, good writing is rewriting. And uh, when you do that as a team, 
how do you do that, Brian? How do y'all you know sort that out? Because as an individual, I could go through and kill off some things and add other things. Do y'all kind of sit down collectively and do what you just did and say, okay, this part's too weak. This doesn't drive the story. Let's kill this. You go work on that. I'll go work on this. How do you do it? Yeah, that's what we do. We we as we're going along, we're we're writing subplots in. For example, the book we're working on right now, Dempsey, book seven, there's a subplot uh, that we're working on. And we both said uh, yesterday, we said, I don't know if we're going to need this in the end or not. And we said, well, we're just going to finish it out and see how it'll dovetail in. And if and if we don't like it or we go through on DE and we're like, yeah, you know, it's a distraction, then we just cut it and it's, it's no big deal. And that's sort of been our approach, which is um, anything is fair game. And that ironically is very liberating, right? So once you're not sort of trying to protect anything in the book, now you're free to just write whatever you want um, and change. Um, it, it, it actually takes the, the lock, I think, off of your creativity. Your, your mind is free to say that, well, just because I wrote something doesn't mean it has to stay in the book. Um, so we, ha- we have a sort of a funny story about that I could share if you're interested, but um, sure. T- tell us. Yeah. So in Sons of Valor one, our, our villain, uh, Kasim Nadir, he was, uh, he's, he's operating, he's functioning as an aerospace engineer in London and, and we needed to get him over into, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan for, uh, for the, for the story to unfold. But we knew he wanted to maintain his, his cover. You know, he wanted to keep working at this, this, uh, fictional aerospace conglomerate because he can get information. So we said, well, okay, how is he gonna, <laughs> how is he gonna get over there and get back? We said, okay, he'll, he'll take vacation and then he's got two weeks and he can come back. And so the whole book, we're trying to cram into two weeks. Like how, okay, how are we gonna make this happen? And we're, we're going through all these horrible permutations with the plot, forcing one element over here to change and making compromises on this, all because we had put, in chapter one, he needed to be back in two weeks. And I mean, we're, we're arguing about something about it. Like, what do we do? And, and finally we start, we both start laughing. We're like, it hit us like as an epiphany. We, he doesn't have to be back in two weeks. He, he, he can come back. He doesn't have to come back. We, he can come back whenever we tell him to come back. He's our character. This because we wrote two weeks, page seven. We just, so we just, just like, I'm going to pull it up. And I'm deleting it right now. Delete it. And he deleted that line and uh, we're like, whew, it was like a weight came off and, and the rest of the book just came together and we had all kinds of revisions because of that. But now that's our inside joke, you know, well, you know, it doesn't have to be done in two weeks. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, after all, you are in control, remember, as the author, you can do yeah. <laughs> do what you want to do. All right, just real quick, let me tell our listeners, we're going to jump over and do a little 10 minute uh, episode uh, about reading and writing tips uh, here with Brian. We can't get Jeff with us because he's, as we said, out in the wilds of West Virginia. Uh, the antagonist in their book is taking control of him and uh, <laughs> he can't he can't get to us. But uh, you can join us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte's podcast for that. Uh, Brian, what's next for the writing? Uh, we got a book three coming out in this series, right? Yeah, Dark Fall is book three. Comes out in, in autumn. Uh, I think we're looking at an October pub date. And uh, that one is sort of the, we would say the climax of this first trilogy. So we, we tend to write our thriller series in nested trilogies. So this is the first trilogy. It ends with Dark Fall. And um, we had, I think we had some 
big shoes to fill after Dark Angel to really try to figure out how do we step it up a notch. And uh, so we did. So um, everything's going to come to a head in, in book three. Yeah, you get a clue when you read the epilogue to Dark Angel, but I won't give that away. I'll let the readers uh, get there. So, uh, hey, Brian, look, thanks. Uh, thank Jeff when you get a chance to talk to him. But uh, thank you, too, for being on Charlotte Rear's podcast. Thanks, Lane. This is a great interview. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.